In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. One in five adults suffers from a mental health condition or substance use disorder. With so many Americans affected by a mental health condition, unfortunately, individuals are not receiving the care they need. A shortage of qualified mental health professionals has created a bottleneck of people who need treatment versus those who actually receive effective treatment. On today's podcast, we discuss the differences between effective and ineffective therapy. When I worked at my previous job, we would often have certain projects that needed to get done, and there's a procurement department that we had to work through. And what does that mean? Procurement is like purchasing. So anytime you're going to spend a chunk of money, it was made sure it was done professionally, and they kind of overlooked everything and wanted to make sure we weren't hiring our brother or our friends and having them do the jobs. So we would, we were required to actually um, bring in three vendors or professionals to pitch the work. We had to have a decision analysis. Their bid would come in. We would discuss it, evaluate it, and make the decision moving forward. I hated that process, but it served a purpose because it provided perspective. You would see three ways to attack a problem. And a lot of people believe that that process is put in place just to find the lowest bidder. And that wasn't my experience. We often went with sometimes the highest because their value and expertise would really add value to the job and it would have a significant return. But you would often choose the, uh, the vendor who you believe you would have a strong working relationship with. Now, I've tried to adapt this into my life anytime I'm making an investment. So... I had to have a furnace replaced or having some roofing work done. Have people come in and they kind of pitch the work and then you make your choice and you move forward. But when it comes to our physical health or our mental health, that doesn't really happen. I looked up some quick statistics. One in five adults suffers from a mental health condition or substance use disorder. So there are 210 million adults in the United States. That means 42 million people right now in the United States are suffering from either a mental health condition or substance use disorder. Do you know how many professionals there are in the United States working in the mental health system? According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are more than 577,000 mental health professionals practicing in the U.S. today. Do you know what? 35% of those or doctoral or master's level. So when, you, when you're really focusing on your education in this profession, and a small percentage of those have really dedicated the time to doing quality work. So when it comes to our physical health and our mental health, we don't ever really take the time to confirm if the person we're working with is the right fit for us. It's a simple supply and demand issue right now. Mm. You take what you can get. 
But if you're sitting down with somebody and you're talking about a mental health issue, how do you really know whether the advice you're getting and the treatment you're on, you're undertaking is, is the best for you when you've never had the opportunity to really explore options with other people? Sean, you entered this podcast today and you said you've never been in therapy. Never been in therapy. So we're, we're actually having a podcast today to talk about how therapy can be harmful. Now, before we get into any of this, I, I want to be able to say is that I believe when you're working with a really competent professional, therapy can be life-changing. Obviously, this is what I've dedicated my career to. It's, in addition to my family, it's the most important aspect of my quality of life. The, the ability to, to help people who are really suffering and struggling takes so much of my energy and feels like it's my purpose. And with that, you begin to, to learn what really works, what's effective. There's such, a, there's such a science base that's been built over decades that I really value. But unfortunately, the mental health treatment is probably more influenced by pop culture, uh, television, um, theorists that sometimes wrote you know, in the early 20th century. And you're exposed to so many ideas that are, that are harmful. And I don't want to have this podcast move in a direction where we talk about the abuse that somebody can be at the hands of somebody who abused a power position. That's criminal behavior. That's obvious. What, I, what I'm interested in is how good ideas can go wrong and where people's notion of what therapy actually is uh, influences negatively the outcome of a mental health treatment. So if I could start uh, just by posing some questions to the two of you, mm -hmm. I'd be interested, Sean, you've never been in therapy. Now you've worked with us for less than a year, so obviously you've been exposed to what we're doing and on this podcast, but I'd be more interested to know how you viewed therapy before you came here. What was the idea of a layperson who's never been in therapy, what you envisioned it to be? Everything has been influenced by what I've seen in, in television and movies. And maybe the reason why I've never pursued sitting down with somebody to work through an issue is because I believed it was going to establish a lifelong relationship with someone who uh, I would sit down with every two weeks and talk about what's happening in my life. And that was something that I felt like I really didn't need. I didn't never thought of um, a session with a therapist being short term and uh, <coughs> problem solving you know, or overcoming an issue or giving me the skills that I may need in life. That to me uh, was not something that was top of mind. Okay. So you did see it as something that was really long-term, mm -hmm. this process that unfolded mm -hmm. over maybe potentially years yeah. in getting to understand that yep. person. Yep. Until he watched What About Bob? And then he realized <laughs> that, <laughs> that that's, a, that's truly a remarkable relationship. But Kelly, what about you? So, you know, my story is the quick uh, diagnosis when I was younger. And I'm, what I, I did not remain in therapy. They put me on medication. So um, prior to that, I would say I, I thought of um, the relationship between a therapist and, and a patient that you had to build relationship. That was a bit, it was always going to be a big part. You had to, you know, build trust. And if that trust were there, then it was going to be a long-term thing. Cause I, I did 
have other friends who were actually in therapy at the time in high school. And they, um, they had been in therapy for years, um, not on medication or anything. So I always looked at it as a long-term, kind of a long-term struggle. And if you found the right individual that it can help, you know, it can help. That idea of trust is, is critically important because therapy is, is so unique to our society. It's kind of odd when you think about it, right? That somebody comes in with a complete stranger and in the course of that relationship discloses some of the most intimate details that are often not disclosed to anybody else. Not some of your closest people in your life, your spouse, your best friends, your family. And it's within that trust that you can really begin to be aware of who you are and what you're struggling with and how that influences you. And so that is dependent upon the objectivity of a professional relationship. If that person is not objective and is you know, attached to you in a way that is similar to other relationships in that person's life, then you are unwilling to have that honest, radically open dialogue that, that only exists in the confines of that professional relationship. And so that's important when we discuss potential harms moving forward in today's podcast is the impact of long-term relationship building and its negative influence on the individual. Now, I can understand that today's podcast can be somewhat controversial in the way that many therapists are trained and what they believe in because there are these prevailing ideas about mental health and how people heal. And some of those ideas that we have accepted to be true don't always stand the test of time or empirical scrutiny. And I do really believe in the value of empirical scrutiny because if you just listen to some of our our podcasts, when we talk about things like human biases, for example, or we talk about the influences and extremes in, in thinking, often the road to hell is paved with very good intentions. Mm -hmm. And so the scientific process is a way to be able to institute some objectivity and observation about the end goal or the end result. Science, in a nutshell, developing a hypothesis, testing out that hypothesis and gathering evidence and trying to draw conclusions from that. So today is an we have to interweave relationship, human nature, and science. And that is how we can become critical of therapy. But on the other side, talk about how it can really be life-changing and what are the solutions to some of the problems in the mental health field. If Sean's numbers are accurate, it is a supply and demand issue. And what that means is there are people out there who really require a very sound, supportive, scientifically backed intervention that can improve their quality of life, and they're not getting it. And one of the reasons why that isn't happening is because there are a lot of people who are receiving psychotherapy who really don't need it or don't get much of a benefit from it. That is high-functioning people 
who are paying, and, and in some respects, a very high amount of money in order to have someone kind of listen and analyze and problem solve with you over years. And when the system is overloaded and someone who might be suicidal, abusing substances, debilitated by anxiety, worry, and fear, depressed, self-injurious, struggling with an eating disorder. Those are what really do overwhelm the healthcare system. And having mental health professionals who know how to intervene with those conditions is where we are falling short in our society. So your numbers were frightening because there was only a small percentage of highly trained therapists. And I always question how many of those, the percentage of those, were trained under this idea of the talking cure. So here's, here's number one when I have concerns about when therapy can be harmful. It is this idea that just talking leads to change. This would be talk therapy. Just talking. Yeah. Right? And in master's level programs or non-science-based programs, they're really taught to be what's called active listeners. And at our center here, I talk about uh, adopting what's called therapy speak. What do you mean by that? Therapy speak is that the therapist does nothing more than validate, reflect back what you say, uh, and summarize the conversation. I hear what you're saying right now. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so what you're telling me right now is mm. that you understand. So it's, a, it's an active listening process, almost under the premise that the client who's sitting in front of you will, if provided, the support and the safety, will be able to talk and emotionally process what they're going through and lead to kind of insight and then behavior change. Sometimes that happens in my personal relationship. You know, my wife will be talking about something, I'll be doing dishes or cleaning up. And then she'll say, are you even listening to me? And I'll say, of course I'm listening to you. What did I just say? And I'm just repeating the last thing that I remember her saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that what maybe uh, this is happening is all of a sudden they're kind of put in a position like, oh, I need to, I need to say something at this point. So I think a, a lot of clients who come into our practice and been talking about other approaches to therapy will say similar things like oh, that person was really nice and really supportive but we're just, I just got stuck mm -hmm. and they remain stuck and they're trying another approach. And obviously we talk a lot here and our center specializes in more skill-based approaches because I believe that effective therapy, and I think science supports this, encourages the development of new skills and behavior. Okay? Because when you're stuck, you're stuck in a way of, of thinking about your life and thinking about your social world and your behavior is, is in a pattern that isn't serving you well in some way. And that, that behavior of doing the same thing kind of over and over again and then questioning why nothing's changing is that feeling of, of stuckness. And good therapy helps understand what is contributing 
to that person feeling that way or behaving that way, but also has a very strong motivational component Mm -hmm. to push them to do something that could be very much outside of their comfort zone. And being outside of your comfort zone creates new opportunities to learn and to think about things differently. So I am absolutely a believer that we have resiliency built into our DNA, that we have the ability to adapt or overcome. And I know the counter viewpoint is this, and, and somehow it gets framed this way, that you know people who are in emotional pain and are in a lot of distress Talking about pushing somebody to do something different and coping and so forth comes across as somewhat like invalidating. And that message is harmful because you can validate someone's emotional pain and what they've gone through, but inherently believe in their ability to overcome that, to be a survivor and to be able to change so many patterns. So when, you, when, I, when I have this conversation in my head, I don't want to invalidate the 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 survivor of physical or sexual violence um, where there has been such harm created to the safety and security of their world that not that talking about changing a pattern invalidates why they're in that pattern in the first place, because obviously they're in that pattern to protect self-protect. And there's good reason why they might think the way they do and live the way they do. And at the same time, just staying stuck like that does keep you a victim to your past circumstances and doesn't allow you to heal or progress forward. So that same person that's stuck, and we talk about talk therapy, if they they were to come to you and, and they were to say, well, I've had a really bad experience with um, talk therapy. I've been to three or four other individuals um, and they, they remain stuck. So they feel as if it, it doesn't work. That type of therapy doesn't work. Is that and they're right and, and they're right um, but could could you argue that that's because of of the relationship that they had in other words that the, the the therapist did not build or enough of a trusting relationship with that person or how does how do you d- distinguish whether or not one talk therapy works one doesn't yeah my my experience is that obviously there are in in any profession, there are poor professionals who might not be able to build that trust or safety. But I see a lot of people who are able to build the trust and safety. Just talking is not enough and in some situations can be harmful. So to think about um, your mental health and well-being just from a perspective as emotional processing is, doesn't tell the entire story. Obviously, there are situations where emotional processing is the road to health and well-being. Examples of this include grief. Mm -hmm. Grief counseling and and the loss of somebody you love. That pain uh, and emotionally processing that loss leads to that person being able to uh, progress forward in their life and not be held down and stuck by that, that grief. If someone was exposed to a traumatic event, traumatic event being, you know, something that did really threaten the bodily integrity or the safety of that individual, whether that is physical violence, sexual violence, or prolonged abuse and neglect in some way, the ability to emotionally process that loss, the pain, the threat, 
is necessary to, to healing. So in those terms, people are correct, but it's insufficient because it's, it's more than just emotional processing. There are also patterns in the way that either that person um, approaches their life moving forward, uh, exposure to things that they are avoiding, uh, changing the way that they think about things that might be related to the events of their past. These are all active processes that are necessary for that person to become quote-unquote unstuck. Second, when these ideas are misapplied, so when they are applied to situations where emotional processing is ineffective, we have harmful therapy. For example, of course, there's many people who are struggling in mental health who don't have that same traumatic background or history or are dealing with grief or loss. There are people who might be struggling with fear, worry, low mood. Um, in those particular situations, just ruminating and emotionally processing without any purpose, without any strong scientific foundation in emotion regulation to drive somebody to get past that point where they're no longer being impaired by worry or fear or their mood, becomes harmful because you're just sitting in your emotion without any purpose. That's why active therapies have strong scientific backing because if you think about your own mental well-being, are you better in your life when you're sitting there in your own head ruminating or are you better when you have the ability to bring your attention outward and engage in, into your life in some meaningful way? Always better when you're engaging in life. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, you know, the vo I always think of this as uh, sharing your vulnerabilities. That, that can we discuss a little bit about the idea of vulnerability? So if you're going to let things out and you're going to be honest and open, you're going to have a radically genuine relationship with a therapist. Mm -hmm. Don't you have to um, allow those vulnerabilities to come out in a way that is non-threatening? Absolutely. That's that trust uh, in, a, in a session. If you're not willing to be open with what you're struggling with because you have fear that the therapist is going to be unresponsive or invalidating or rejecting in some way, then it's very difficult for you to take the absolute next steps in your life. There's some really interesting research that, I, that I've followed based on, on the therapeutic relationship and its impact on therapy outcomes. So there, there has been this idea in psychotherapies that there's no real difference between the approaches or modalities. It's almost entirely based on the relationship itself. And that's on kind of like faulty research. So what happens when people do well in therapy, they tend to relate, uh, rate the relationship as strong. Mm -hmm. and, and when people drop out of a therapy uh, situation, they'll rate the relationship or the rapport between them and the therapist to be poor. Okay. So that, uh, so people have taken that and said, well, then the relationship equals the uh, outcome. Mm -hmm. But, you know, another way to kind of compare this would be uh, 100% of uh, married people graduated the first grade. <laughs> Does that mean that you graduate first grade, you're going to be married? It's correlation. Right. Yeah. So if you look deeper into some of this data, re really what it suggests is that um, 
if if you if you don't come if the therapist does not possess strong empathy caring and is a great listener nothing's going to happen in the therapy but it's not necessarily sufficient to produce an outcome so one of the factors that is really important is your belief in the therapist's ability to help you. So it's rating of therapist competency. I've got an idea. How can I'm trying to apply this to something that I can understand. And I'm going to put you both on the spot. Sorry. Have you all watched the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yeah. All right. During that movie, there's a progression in terms of what is revealed about that character that Matt Damon plays. Will Hunting, and his therapist, Robin Williams. I was thinking about their first, or one of their first sessions, if you recall, and I, Raj, I wanted you to be critical of that movie and the role that Robin Williams' character played. I don't know if it was good therapy. I don't know if it was bad therapy. I don't know the type of therapy that he was doing, but they sat in the room and they stared at each other and they said nothing, not a word, not a peep. And then Robin Williams' character starts kind of like dozing off, almost like falling asleep. And that's when Will Hunting, Matt Damon's character, speaks up and starts telling a story. And that kind of kicks off their relationship. And the justification that I remember Robin Williams' character saying was like, I grew up in this neighborhood. I know, I know what type of person he is. I need to establish dominance over him i need to let him know that i'm not going to be like the other therapists he may have been exposed to and then that relationship starts being established and then things are revealed over the course of that treatment break that down and, and tell me <laughs> what your perspective is of that uh, of that uh, therapeutic relationship in the movie first of all i love the movie mm -hmm. okay right? good. and it's it's <laughs> one of my uh i think it's one of my top 20 movies of all time mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of ideas that in, in reality, clinically, are, are harmful. So the first one that I think was most harmful was that that relationship was built out of a lot of self-disclosure. So you could see that um, where the emotional dependence can, can take place in a therapy relationship. Mm -hmm. Robin Williams was almost using uh, his patient to help him with a lot of his emotional pain, his the loss grief. of his wife. Mm-hmm. So that's where you're using that, re that relationship for your own benefit. So any therapy that has that degree of self-disclosure um, is crossing professional boundaries and is universally thought of as harmful to the client. Now, they didn't portray it that way in the movie, but imagine the situation where you're emotionally unloading on a vulnerable person who's looking to you for help. That's dangerous. And that's... That's where we talked about um, unharmful or harmful therapy being one where it really lacks those, those boundaries. What makes therapy unique is that is a, it's a one-way intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. That person has to count on you, that you are there for them. If, you, if in any way they pick up on the fact that you are serving some emotional need through them, that creates an unhealthy dependence. And often we see this too often in these long-term therapies where that's how it's evolved. And the person is really scared to ever leave the therapy. And they're scared to leave the therapy because the way they have coped 
has become a, a reliance on the process over years. And it can be justified by a therapist that, that the therapy itself serves some function almost um, like exercising. You know, like you have to maintain your exercise throughout your life. Therefore, like maintaining your mental health is through weekly therapy. I think those ideas are, are harmful. You're, you're not pushing that person to create those relationships outside their lives and the new skills to solve the problems and face their, face their struggles in a way that can allow them to overcome. They're relying on the therapy relationship. That's why good therapy prepares you for the end from the beginning. That this is a short-term process. Now, short-term for some people can be 16, 20 sessions, could be six sessions. For others, it could be a couple years. So I don't want to just put a, a label because some people have gone through horrible um, and tragic events in their life and they need more time. But the purpose is that the therapy is for them and you are building skills in order for them to function and create a life worth living in a way that if they weren't in the safety of that professional environment, it'd be very difficult to do. If someone is uh, experienced a traumatic event and they're, they're going through therapy and sometimes they need more time, sometimes during that course of time, another traumatic event could happen. Do they recognize the growth in their ability to cope uh, while in treatment? I mean, is there a reflect, is there like reflection back on where I am now versus where I was and, and what I've developed and what I've learned? This brings up a, a question of what is evidence-based treatment? Yeah. And there is a misconception about that, about evidence-based treatment. In efforts to uh, be able to develop validity for specific treatments. Randomized clinical control trials have been developed to try to determine its its effect. Now, I think a lot of those principles that are learned in that scientific process are really valuable to the clinician. However, I want people to think about evidence-based treatment a little bit differently. Evidence-based treatment is the systematic way in which you, the client, and your therapist measure the effectiveness of your treatment over time. Mm -hmm. Okay, So if I'm going to provide a therapy for you and we develop a conceptualization together of you and the struggles that exist in your life, and that should be collaborative, we need to find a way to measure whether you are making improvements. And that can be around the degree of pain that you experience in your life, no doubt, and its impact on how you interact. But it also should be the resolution of real problem reactions or behaviors. The way people deal with their emotional pain varies greatly. Mm -hmm. If you noticed when I talked about certain conditions, whether it's an eating disorder or substance abuse or self-injury, all three of those situations are related to how someone deals with pain. And they deal with pain in a way that we call experiential avoidance. So if you self-injure, you are the function of that in some way is to escape pain. If you turn to an eating disorder and you're bulimic and you're binge eating and you're purging, you are entering that behavior to escape an experience that you're feeling, usually painful. 
could be uh, could be insecurity. It could be boredom. Could be high distress. When someone turns to substances, that's often in a response to change your experience. When you say experience, you're talking emotional experience. What you're feeling, your internal experience. Yes, yeah. that includes thoughts. That includes memories. Mm-hmm. That includes physical sensations. That includes emotions. Mm-hmm. So that internal experience leads to a way to respond to that, a coping response. Now, if I believe that we have the ability to be resilient and adaptive, we want to use our emotional experience, even the painful ones, to help us learn. But these conditions, what drive people into treatment is they fall into patterns of coping that are self-destructive or harmful. Sex can be a way of, of dealing with pain. So people become promiscuous, um, seeking love in ways that, you know, in the short term might provide some form of a validation, but in the long term maintain pain. Those patterns and understanding those patterns in context are really, really important. And so I want to be able to measure whether we're making progress to that. It's not just the reflection of what some person believes to be true. I want to be able, and I want my clients to be able to sit down and say, I'm just more effective here. I'm better here in my life. I'm not stuck in these same episodes. Your ability to prove that with your clients, whether it's through identifying problem behavior, using some measure over time that's, that's administered, or achieving something, some goal, if that's not clear in your therapy, you're at risk of, again, just meandering through your day-to-day life in emotional processing and uh, rumination in a way that doesn't propel you to make any substantive changes that, that exist. And so when you see a movie like Goodwill Hunting, it sends the idea of the quote-unquote talking cure that, you know, it's like you emote you cry, right? Like there was a breakdown moment where they were hugging each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another kind of boundary that's problematic in psychotherapy relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, so they, they're hugging each other as, they're, as if they're really, you know, that, that emotion being released now resolves that trauma. He said, it's not your fault. It's not your over fault. Over and over again. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not your fault. So they create that moment. Not to say that things like that don't happen, like, it's not your fault and someone's crying. Like these things obviously happen. It's not just like that happens. The next day they wake up, you know, they're traveling out to, you know, find a girl on the West Coast and they've overcome, you know, everything that's happened. It's a lot more complex than that. And you're creating new learning. So in that situation, that client, you know, understood that some of the things that happened to him weren't his fault, that he was the victim to other people. And now he's going to have some agency or self-efficacy moving forward to make changes in his life. Those things happen, but in clinical reality, it's going to be almost a day-to-day weekly process for someone like that to have to overcome what happened to them. It does include emotional processing, but also comes new behaviors. You know, you have to relate to the world in a new way, other, or else you're going to be stuck in, in those patterns from your past. So it's possible that the coping mechanisms that I, let's say I'm, I'm diagnosed depressed, um, I'm going through, I'm seeking therapy, but I'm coping with um, alcohol or, or whatever. How much of judgment plays a role? I just thought of this. So in other words, now I have, I'm, 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 I'm attuned to 
all right, I don't like where I'm headed, so I'm talking to somebody, okay? But my coping mechanism is drinking, and so I do that, right? I'm going to go to a therapist, but what I don't want to hear, because I've heard my family tell me, I've heard everyone else tell me, and I'm just sick and tired of being judged for that, right? Mm -hmm. How much of, of, of it matters on that whole, the fear of judgment with, uh, with therapy? It's really important, right? You, that per you have to trust that that person almost adopts a non-judgmental stance. And the way that I think about working with my clients is the only thing I care about is them becoming more effective and overcoming the struggles that brought them into therapy in the first place. The idea of like a judgment around that serves no value. Mm -hmm. In fact, it only elicits shame. And eliciting shame does not have value in a relationship with a, a therapist. So if, if you have someone who is repeatedly doing a problematic behavior over the course of treatment, how do you approach it free of judgment to point out that they keep doing things? Like, what is your approach to that? Mm -hmm. Or what is a good approach to that? I think when we, if we say that uh, problematic behaviors serve a function for somebody, mm -hmm. okay, that we have to understand what that function is. So in the context of a therapy relationship, there's an analyzation process that exists in understanding all the factors that would lead somebody to uh, behave in a certain way. When you reach an agreement on that with a client, you can validate the emotion that they are experiencing and why they may be doing it without validating the behavior as effective. So when your clients can understand that and you're in an encouraging and motivational stance to respond in a new way and try something out, that's the activity I think of effective therapies. The only way you really, from my opinion, the only way they overcome that is they have to learn an alternative behavior. Mm, okay. They have to do something different and that has to serve them in a more effective way. So you can validate there the way they were feeling in that moment that led them to do that but you don't have to justify their action you would you would then tell them a better way of approaching that moment or what you call prompts yeah so i think in mental health treatment you will get much more from doing things than just talking about things okay so if talking about things doesn't lead to doing new things i don't think it's effective and it can be harmful so this is where I'm going to differ from other people in the field. They're just going to trust a natural process leads to, uh, leads to change. And I don't trust that because I don't think that's what I've seen clinically. It's not what I know about people. And I don't think therapy outcome research demonstrates it. So you have to be in a therapy that, that you can push change in a way that validates the pain and the struggle in getting there, but also reinforces rewards um, the development of new behaviors that are effective in their life. We have to care about the long term. We have to care about the development of new skills in the long term. So there's this <clears throat> process that I think individuals will go through when they're seeing a therapist and let's say six months later, just in one moment, um, for whatever reason, it just, they, they lose trust and they're like, that's it. They're done. They, they, they end their therapy sessions. There's, I, I think there would be this process of that, that individual then feeling lost. 
and then wanting to seek more help or going elsewhere. <clears throat> is that true though? Were, like where they go through a feeling of, of a process of feeling lost again? How, how do they then go and trust therapy? You know, what, what, what do you say to those individuals that are in that they feel lost because of that? Yeah, I think you have to be able to articulate the process really well. So where a lot of people come into our center and when they communicate about that process of, of being like stuck and losing the trust of therapy, a lot of times they're saying, I, I did what they asked. I came in. I just talked. I talked about what I was struggling with. I emotionally processed, but I didn't get anywhere. Yeah. I just didn't get anywhere. And I do believe that there has to be some diagnostic system. I don't believe in the DSM because it's this categorical medical model. But if we think about human behavior uh, and mental health related problems on some greater dimension of adaptation to stress, right? What somebody does to adapt to the stressful conditions of their life. I think that's much more of an effective way to kind of diagnose. So when a therapist has this ability to articulate, well, you've been through this and going through this led to this kind of response because it's serving this purpose for you in the short term. But we see in the long term, you haven't been able to respond in a more um, effective way to create the life you want to live. So I want you to trust your feelings right now, what you're experiencing emotionally. I want you to see as a gift that is sending you a message to learn. Let's just take something really simple. Social anxiety. Mm -hmm. The fear of being rejected by another person can have significant consequences on your quality of life. Because if I ask the two of you, what leads to a life worth living, right? What makes life worth living? I can break it down to probably two things generally, but I want to get a sense of what the two of you, what you think about it. For me, relationship and experiences. For me, family, yeah. All right, I'm going to say love, right? Love in, uh, in family, love in relationships, and I think purpose. So when you talk about career or even non-career, like purpose could be taking care of your family and, and love. Human, human lifespan it can fall like that you're going to struggle in achieving that in multiple ways for multiple reasons. So love could have been, love for you could be associated with pain, whether it's an abusive uh, history, um, or you've never felt like you've really been loved in your life, or you haven't been able to find love, or even other ways of seeking out human connection, you feel rejected socially and weren't able to develop the friendships that you really desire. The fear of that is socially uh, social anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Fear of being embarrassed, fear of being judged. And look how it can, it can impair your ability to live, developing those relationships or taking risks in career or purpose. So your avoidance of facing those experience can lead to a restricted lifestyle. That restricted lifestyle can be loneliness. It could be substance use. Do you know how many people abuse alcohol in order to lower the anxiety and be in a social situation? Mm. Right. So it's that escape from that experience or that emotion. Any of 
Any therapy that doesn't push forward an active new learning process with the development of skills in that situation is ultimately going to fail. You can't just talk about your insecurities and fears and then expect that therapy is going to make a change because you're just ruminating and talking about that emotional process without anything additional to change that pattern. And that's where people get stuck because they, it's, that, it's that fallacy of the talking cure. It's just much more than that. And there is a, uh, there is a trauma-informed approach that is uh, you know, building steam in, in the psychotherapy community. And I, and I want to validate why that's developed because in the modern mental health care system, people who really did go through these traumatic experiences were invalidated in that system with a diagnosis or poor care or some quick manualized based therapy that wasn't effective. And so they are, they're screaming out for help. Like I want to be understood and what I, what I've been through in order for you to support me moving forward. But the road to hell can always be paved with really good intentions because some, what happens, and this is another concern for me when therapy can be harmful, is that you view anything that's emotionally painful as a trauma. And then that trauma has to be processed and understood under these principles of trauma-informed care or these principles of exposure to, uh, to trauma. But there's a real difference between the stressful events and the pain of living in comparison to what actually is post-traumatic stress or acute stress. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's controversial and I want to speak to this because just being rejected or criticized or maybe going through a, a divorce, a tough period, tough period of your life, although painful really is not the same as maybe being a victim of war, like what's maybe happening in your Ukraine right now and what you're exposed to. Mm -hmm. So witnessing violence or your life being threatened or a rape victim whose bodily integrity was um, unjustifiably, you know, violently harmed that threatens the safety and security of that individual. So the level of impairment in being able to move forward in your life is much different for someone who's kind of in the, who's undergone violent acts or repeated abuse as compared to someone who's just going through something that we can consider somewhat normal along the lifespan. And so there is, there is harm when you fragilize a person and their ability to do things in a way that they're disordered, traumatized, or ill, when they have all the capacities to be able to take the, the steps to overcome that. So, and I hope that's not coming across as invalidating to the fact that they have pain. It's just a different reaction. I think the body and the way we process this type of information when it's like really life-threatening mm -hmm. or life-impairing in that way, it's different. So somebody who could be working in um, relationships or like marriage and family therapy, the majority of the... Th of the um, clients that they may see are, are suffering from those, those periods of a breakup or a divorce. They may say, well, who are you to say what is traumatic and what is not traumatic? But that, you're, that word traumatic is being used for a lot of things. You know, can you respond to that? 
Yeah, I, I, it's the use of language that's a that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, if we had other words to validate their experience, um, then we can talk about the nuances and the oh, differences. You made me just think of something. And in this country, the word love means something, and it has a false expectation of what love is supposed to be. And maybe it's been shaped by movies and culture. In in Greek language, there's eight words for love. And we don't have eight words for love in the English language. I love my dog. Uh, yeah. I love a good steak. Mm-hmm. I love my wife. We apply it to everything. I love you guys. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But th- people don't know what that means. Yeah. You know, what does it mean? And that's the problem with trauma. So, um, you know, it's very, it's, exp- I want you to, to imagine a real life situation for me that might happen in my day, Right. I might get out of a really challenging and difficult session with a, a, a rape victim and then go into the next session where someone who is going through a, who going through a breakup is saying that they're traumatized, right? So that's where- But we, you're a human being. How do, you, how do you separate that? I can separate it pretty clearly by- by telling that person you're in pain right now, you're not traumatized because traumatized has an implication, right? Mm -hmm. What is that? When you hear that word trauma or traumatized, what's the implication for the two of you? Well, trauma means that somebody went through something that was very horrific, causing um, a memory that can never, they can never get rid of. Yeah. And in my mind, it's almost like they're, they're frozen and they're in a state where they, they can't move forward. Yeah, and when they when you're 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 impaired, yeah, right, like blunt force trauma to the leg, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to walk the same way, mm-hmm. uh, at least for a period of time, right? Where I believe that someone who is going through a breakup, although painful, it's Hurt. it's it's going to be relatively short term, right? And you can still go to class when you're going through a breakup. You can study. Might be harder to do that. Somebody who was a survivor of violence, leaving your home without your mind being attuned to where the next person can harm you, which is an adaptation to that event, is really impairing. Not being able to sleep because you don't want to fall asleep because you're afraid of the neighborhood you live in. Or if you know, your parent is going to come home drunk and beat you. It's really different. And if we don't have a way in the field to distinguish the two, that's a problem in the field. So this is, this is a language problem. And I, and I know that although there are really effective treatments for that victim of sexual violence, I know that what it's going to take for them to overcome such an event is going to be much more challenging, difficult, and going to take more time where the person who's going through a a breakup or felt rejected by a friend group or parents are going through a divorce or going through the divorce that they themselves are going through, although painful, the rates of recovery and that they're going to go back to their previous function and even find love again are high, you know, as long as they respond in a certain way. But the stronger emotional responses could be similar. In the short term. In the short term. It's short term, but it's it's different and it's got to be different. So imagine in today's modern society where they're talking about trauma in this way, the victim of sexual violence where they're really, really impaired. That's invalidating to them. 
And, and to be honestly, it's, to be honest, it's infuriating to most of them comparing for that person to compare and put it in the same light as what they went through is really challenging. And in fact, it can lead to a lot of self-judgment as if that person should be feeling something different or acting different because that quote unquote trauma victim isn't impacted the same way that I am. So I do think that's a problem in the field and I hope I'm coming across in a way that other professionals can understand, especially in the therapies that think you have to go back and replay your, your past. I don't believe you have to replay your past. I believe it depends, right? It's always to what extent, to what degree is it impacting your life right now? We only have this one life to live and we have the present. And I think as, as therapists, we should be really interested in how that person is living their life now and maximizing those moments. So just getting someone in the therapy with the idea of the talking cure and going back and talking about your past, it only seems to be effective when, um, when that past is really impairing their present. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about post-traumatic stress, those people who were victims of, of violence and uh, neglect, abuse, only about 20% are gonna develop PTSD. And that means a good 80% of people have the, the, the capacity to be able to heal on their own without mental health treatment. So when treatment is provided in situations where someone doesn't require it or need it, it could actually get in the way of natural human processing and adaptation. You're bringing up a good thing. Um, I was thinking about emergency rooms. Someone goes to the emergency room and there's almost like this triage and they prioritize if someone comes in with a gunshot, that person gets wheeled to the back and they're, they're being treated. Someone comes in with a sprained ankle, maybe they'll give you an ice pack and they'll tell you to wait over here. When it comes to an emotional pain, there's no physical way that you can look at somebody and determine how severe they may be and how much treatment they need up front. Sometimes it may take time for you to identify that maybe what they're presenting up front isn't really what needs the treatment. And we talked this, we started off this conversation by saying there's a supply and demand issue. How do we overcome that supply demand issue in a way to prioritize those that truly need treatment where those who maybe in a month or two could recover on their own aren't, you know, clogging up the bottleneck that exists right now in the system? Yeah, this is where um, an understanding of human resiliency and what is normal and what people are capable of really matters in an evaluation and assessment. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who come in and they may just be fine without any formal intervention. Do you, do you confront people if they sit down with you and, and they're having a conversation with you and you, if, if you feel like they don't typically need I was just going to bring up that because that's what you guys were talking about. The conf there ha yeah. Doesn't there have to be at some point a moment of confrontation, a moment that a therapist has to acknowledge and, and I'm imagining that moment has to be, you have to be very careful, you know, collected, and it's got to be the moment where you believe it's right. It, you do have to confront at some point, correct? It happens more more frequently than you would, you oh, would really? think. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that that person who 
when they first saw you, you might have been really, really struggling. Mm-hmm. And if your therapy is effective, they're, they're improving. And at some point, you have to be able to really recognize that with the client and, and communicate to them that they don't need you and this therapy in the same way. Now, that can elicit a lot of different emotions. One, naturally, it could just elicit fear that, that the reason that they're having success is because of this weekly process that they're going through with you. So you validate that and you help them understand that that's normal. And I think really good therapies have this way of tapering off. You go from you know maybe twice a week to once a week to once every two weeks to once a month. And you're extending those therapy sessions because you're supporting those new skills and the way that you're, they're developing um, new ways of kind of coping. And you're trying to decrease the dependence on, on the therapy and the dependence on you, essentially. And, then, and remember, it's a one-way intimate relationship. So your clients are vulnerable with you. So they feel really close to you. And that's why you have to really respect what they're going through and not create that dependence. And that's hard for a lot of human beings. Mm-hmm. That's hard for therapists who are innately very caring. And we experience some emotions too. You get invested in a person's life and you talk to them every week and you care about them. You know, saying goodbye to them is not easy, but we accept that as professionals because it's in the client's best interest. Right. And you can even talk about that. You know, I've gotten really invested in in your life and I get a lot of joy from uh, what you're able to overcome and what you're doing. And that's true. There's a satisfaction and a joy. And at the same time, you recognize that this relationship is unique um, and it has to end for your benefit. It has to end. And I have to I have to present to you professional objectivity when you don't need me. I have to tell you. Um, and that's and that is because I believe in you. I don't think that happens enough. And there are too many people who don't need therapy are are in it um, for a really long time, only because of that relationship. And then the people who are really kind of in crisis situations and need your help, which is it's it's a much more difficult therapy, emotionally taxing and demanding. They're not able to get in because the therapist is is choosing that easier kind of therapy where you're just supporting someone's growth like that. And we see this way too frequently where because we're a, we're a center that like treats post-traumatic stress, eating disorders, dialectical behavior therapy. Someone develops a relationship with another psychologist even when the, when the behaviors become something that are really challenging for the therapist to, to deal with, they kind of refer that person out even though we can't handle you know everyone who needs that we need therapists who have the skills and the competencies to be able to develop these treatments so it's it's a it's a real problem i'd also imagine that people um that would say well therapy can be harmful might be individuals that have been through the system but they i like to call our, our new generation of young wonderful children instant gratification generation i mean it's it's almost like I have to have an immediate immediate answer. I have to have an immediate solution. And if I don't get that solution in the amount of time that I believe I'm going to either move forward, I'm going to, I'm going to give up on it. I th- 
I believe that instant gratification plays a role in an individual not wanting to continue on with therapy and probably getting them to move over toward medication. It's, it's a really important point. It's, I call it the low tolerance for distress, right? That, what's that instant gratification is that when you experience distress, even when it's high distress, it's not, it's not viewed from a perspective that it, it, it is necessary and can provide you value. It's viewed almost like as a symptom that you have to escape or avoid. And there are a lot of therapists who just struggle to tolerate the emotional distress of their clients and view emotional distress as some symptom of an illness. Obviously, it's fueled uh, psychiatric drugs and other drug use. It's really problematic in our society and culture. It's that quick fix, fast food style, instant gratification and need. And we have to change the messages around that. I encourage everybody to go through episodes of high distress in their life. I do. Um, because what's that, that on Netflix? Be, that would be <laughs> high distress. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is um, if you're going to create a life worth living and, and, it, and it's related to things we've talked about here uh, that the two of you talked about, whether it's purpose, experience, or love. Yeah. If you're not willing to give yourself fully to, to those experiences, then you're probably going to fall short. Um, and the reason people don't give themselves provide, give themselves like that full enter into like experiences and relationship is because they're afraid of the pain. They're afraid of, of failing of the rejection. rejection. And you know, that's, that's part of that low tolerance for, for emotional distress. And the messages are so clear, you know, like, they're just so clear in our society that almost like feeling any of this is like a problem with you. And so this leads to this like stream self judgment that exists in, a, in this generation of people. So really effective therapists are ones who have a high capacity to capacity to tolerate distress because they know it can be of value. Now that we have to be dialectical here, prolonged distress without purpose or growth doesn't serve value. Right, and so there's a lot of um, factors that could lead to somebody uh, feeling pain without any any purpose, and that's our jobs as professionals to understand what is getting in the way of that, and it's probably a lot of those stuck points that we were referring to earlier in patterns. Just feeling pain for no reason provides no value. If you look back at the the writings of generations throughout human history, dealing with the human capacity for pain is one of the challenges in a human life. I think we've ignored a lot of those writings in this current generation um, because obviously there's some, uh, you know, financial benefit, you know, that, is, that exists for, uh, for companies in a, in a free capitalistic society to financially benefit from the use of either treatments or drugs or other things. That's why, like, these current mental health apps are really problematic to me. You know, it's just like, hey, you're struggling in pain. Come talk to us, enter into therapy. Like the talking cure, you're in pain and you talk about it. I'm going to benefit financially off of it. And this is what you need to do in order to overcome your struggles. It has to be about talking and people don't realize that they're, that's, that's financially driven and not scientifically driven. The instinct, sticking with the instant gratification as well. We can talk about social media online. I brought this up to you a little earlier prior to the podcast, but individuals will go on and often take things like online quizzes. They'll sit there and go through, um, I don't know, BuzzFeed could be one of them. Psychology Today is another one. 
and they take 10 questions. Sometimes it's in a fascinating way. Sometimes they're very serious about it, but they'll get your 76% bipolar, you know, you're, th- you know, you're this, you're that. And then, you know, they go and they do, they, maybe they are struggling. They go to seek help from a therapist, right? But they don't really have, they find very quickly, the therapist looks at them and says, that's not a diagnosis that you have. Does or that, does or they, no, I mean, sometimes or, there's too many poorly trained therapists who only understand this through the pop right, culture right. that their clients are existent. So they'll feed into it. But that is a problem, correct? It's a huge problem. Yeah. I mean, it's everybody looking for a, a label. People are confused. And rightly so are they confused because think of all the messages that are sent them through popular culture, through these diagnoses, through the pharmaceutical industry, through education, things we've been really open about on this podcast. They're confused because they don't know what's normal and they're not taught what's normal. They're taught what is disordered. They're taught what's problematic, what they need to look for, where they're a victim, where there's so much of these messages that are repeated over and over again that it leads to this internal self-judgment. Almost everything that you're experiencing, it could be wrong. And we have to be more, we have to be experts on emotion regulation and the science of emotion regulation. And there's a lot of important information around mindfulness and acceptance and understanding our emotions in context and knowing that our emotions are there to serve us for some greater purpose, that stuff's not discussed. It might be discussed in ancient writings. It might be discussed in philosophy. But if you're not in that world, if you're just in the, the, the 2022 uh, social media communication, rapid spread of information, and you, you develop in a, in a culture where you think about your emotions as symptoms, well, you're going to see what we're seeing. It's a rise in mental health conditions and diagnosis that's feeding an entire industry. And that industry is largely ineffective in so many ways. So going back to some of our roots about, about healing, right, is the acceptance-based movement and developing a, a higher tolerance and acceptance for emotional pain and not letting that emotional pain and distress control your actions and your behavior in ways that create more problems. Okay, so going back to a little bit about, you know, the online quizzes and things like that. One of the, um, I I don't want to cross over a former, just say a former colleague who criticized um, therapy actually was in CBT. Um, talked about things like distorted thinking and how it's it's just like this kind of manufactured thing. And, and, and for, for this individual, did not work. Would you, can you comment a little bit on, on those types of criticisms? Yeah, I actually have that on my list as, as harmful, uh, when therapy can be harmful. And that's the, that's my concern with how cognitive behavioral therapy has been sold, uh, and communicated to the general mental health community. It's this idea of a very simplified way that, that, uh, it's just a, it's a series of interventions and skills and then by using learning those skills, you're able to overcome your struggle and pain. Let me talk a little bit about how this has evolved and developed. In order to validate psychological treatments, randomized controlled trials were developed with therapy manuals because there has to be um, a way that the therapy is standardized in a way to determine what's effective. So these specific interventions are developed in a manual and they're administered to, to patients. And then you are measuring the effectiveness that 
me measuring the effectiveness that over time to determine if it's evidence-based. Now, I honestly believe that is, it has been a step forward in trying to validate what works and helping people overcome problematic patterns and struggles. But we can't ignore where it's become harmful. Where it's become harmful is that these manuals have been developed and this belief that if you follow the manual step by step, that that's effective therapy or it oversimplifies certain interventions. This is harmful because it invalidates a person to think that what they're going through, their problems are related to something simple like thoughts they have or distorted thoughts. In clinical reality, CBT has evolved over decades with a wide range of interventions that are designed to be used in a therapeutically effective way to target things that might be maintaining these problems, keeping people stuck. It has been ineffectively applied, partially because of the messages, the manualized treatments, the short term, a set of skills. So you're going to get a reaction from people where that harmed them. Because in here at our center, we don't talk about things like distorted thoughts. Never, ever. Mm -hmm. We take a look at the way that people view their world and understand it from a learning perspective and develop skills to think in new ways, solve problems, overcome something, not in a way that labels a thought to be right or wrong, but in a way that expands someone's perception and pay attention to things that might not be in their awareness. Obviously, that's much different than changing distorted thoughts. Additionally, there's this whole behavioral component that seems to get ignored when people discuss CBT. They just think about the thinking part. The behavioral component is that active process of changing new behaviors, which create new learning and change the way that someone views the world. So any short-term manufactured manual-based treatment that is not based on an individual conceptualization and helps the client to feel like they're in a safe place, that they're being understood, that their story has been told, that's going to be harmful because they're going to give up on the treatment and then they're going to say it's the treatment. But I, what I want to tell you, it's, it's the person that's providing it to you. It's not the, the core tenets of, of the treatment. It's how that person learned it and applied it. So you're bringing up something. I don't even know if we want to get into it today, but I look at all of these mental health care apps that are launching and many of them probably follow that manual that exists. They absolutely do. And then they say that they're backed by science and cognitive behavioral therapy. And then someone sits at home, they download an app, they try it for a period of two weeks, and then maybe they abandon it. And they say, I've tried CBT, it doesn't work for me. I mean, I've had people approach me and say that, listen to this podcast. And they share an app with me and they say, is this what your brother is doing? And I'd laugh and I say, it, it, no, no, that is not. So respond to what's happening in the mental health field with apps. Well, it's, it's what we've talked about here. It's a profit um, from things that in another context, in another way can be helpful. So life is painful and life is even more painful when you're bombarded with all the cultural uh, messages and the media and everything about life right now that that makes life hard so if someone someone's trying to profit off of that like there's some easy way for you to live better and escape your distress 
And you have to go back to the beginning of this podcast where we talked about the importance of that relationship, the uniqueness of that connection and being able to be open and vulnerable in that relationship and under things in a more nuanced and complex way that can only evolve with a trained professional over time who's very empathic, a great listener, who's stable emotionally for you, where that person is not creating dependence, where you're trying to build skills, where you're trying to change the way you think about things, the way that you respond to it, to create a better life for yourself. When those components are there, it's extremely beneficial. When you want to take one thing out of there and use it uh, to create an app, or you want to communicate that there's some quick pill, anything that kind of communicates the message that there's instant gratification, or there's going to be instant help very quickly by something that's rather simple, Listen, trust your gut around that, right? This is why this is why we've run into problems the way that we have. So I, I can hear the criticism on the other end right now. We talked about there being a, a large amount of people that need access to mental health care. Uh, there's not enough trained clinicians that can do it. There's a, there's a problem right now where there's people seeking out care that maybe don't need it. The, the business of these apps, and if I understand most technology companies, uh, their business model is to be agile, to be quick, to fail fast. They may have these core tenets of CBT in place, and as they continue to evolve, they may see that their, their business model is really to provide some short-term care to those who you might turn away from a session so that it's opening up the door for those who truly do need care to find a trained psychologist to sit down with. And, and Not if it doesn't work. You know they're they're expanding their they're expanding their base, mm-hmm. and a lot of people are turning to to those apps are looking for ways to um, feel better, and if those things that are presented to them out of context, uh, and they're just tools, they're tools that maybe in one situation can be effective over time. Like there's a lot of things that could be tools. Yep. Like I use apps with my clients, but it's 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 usually. Uh, no, it's not usually. It's always in the context of gathering information and developing a plan within that professional environment. It's measuring, measuring yeah. measurements. Yeah, and even if like I wanna, if I wanna treat anorexia or something, obviously we have to measure that. You know that what that person is eating, um, as well as their emotions, thoughts, behaviors around eating. So that's a tool under my guidance, uh, and in a professional treatment that is helpful. You give that to the client on their own. It's not going to be very helpful at all. But when it comes to CBT, I call it the CBT for dummies approach, right? It's these basic ways of like challenging your own thinking about things. And remember, we said earlier, being in your head can be harmful, right? Analyzing, examining your own thinking, there could be a, a paralyzation process from overanalyzation. And Really strong mental health therapists can see where that, that's happening, hopefully, and, and bring people out of that process. This is just part of the, uh, the marketing that exists out there is to, is to expand it to as many people as possible to maximize your profit. It's, I, I don't see these things as, as being highly effective. So we certainly kind of went on a journey today, meandering back and forth about you know, what effective therapy can look like and what harmful therapy can can look like. I'm a a real believer in effective therapy encourages the development of new scale skills and behaviors. 
That could include your willingness or ability to process emotion. It could also, you know, include the idea that processing emotion without any purpose, direction, or scientific backing or support in any way could also be harmful. So only when you're working with a, a professional who understands the, the time-limited nature of a psychotherapy, what actually works, and respects the developing relationship between the two of you, one that has to be objective and prepares you for the end of it, can these things effectively occur? When the therapy comes too long and it creates emotional dependence, when somebody's just an active listener without building these skills, when the word trauma is thrown around to describe anything that's emotionally painful and undermines your own ability to cope or be resilient for phase of life problems, these are all examples of where harm can take place. When empirically validated concepts are simplified, then it becomes invalidating. When someone works out of a manual, it becomes problematic. When therapists view emotions as symptoms of illness and have low tolerance for distress, which could push you into seeking out drug options to deal with emotions, something that actually has to be experienced and understood in a therapeutic relationship. These are all examples of where therapy can be harmful. But please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to communicate today. We have decades of evidence to show that professional relationship is highly effective when it's responsibly provided. We just have to be aware of where these principles of change can also be misrepresented to create harm and dependence. And that's why we need to have a high ethical standard for the administration of psychotherapy. We need to continue to evolve the science. We don't want to demonize it. We want to try to understand it and have open discussion and debate. And let's be careful of language and the limitations of language. Anything in a, in a treatment that undermines someone's ability to overcome what they're going through, in my opinion, is problematic. And let's talk about what works. And let's talk about what doesn't work without a defensiveness. This has to be more of a, a science than, than a cult. Because, you know, everything is open in a psychotherapy relationship to become more cult-like if it doesn't have those ethics and that science backing. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.